Open your Bibles to the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, we'll begin looking at verse 4 this morning. And we will not exhaust verse 4 this morning, nor next week, nor the week following, nor the week following that. The truth of the matter is, is that we could never exhaust the first chapter of Ephesians and even verse 4. But we're going to make a a real stab at it uh, starting this morning. We will be back to it for sure. The title of the message this morning, Chosen Before Time. Chosen Before Time. Let me just read the verse for you. I'll pick it up in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. My first exposure to the amazing truths of the first chapter of Ephesians occurred nearly 35 years ago. In another church on the other side of the country, and me as a far younger believer, had been invited to help team teach an adult Sunday school class. So it was myself and a couple of other men in conjunction with the associate pastor of that church. And he uh, took a shining to me and spent a fair amount of time with me and discipling me and so forth and uh, challenging me with uh, regard to the truths of this great chapter. And so in order to uh, try to get some handle on what was going on here, I, I really kind of plunged into it. And as I plunged into it, my eyes were opened in a way that they had never been really since I had come to, to uh, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ uh, five or six years earlier than that as a college student being uh, converted out of atheism. So I uh, became increasingly um, provoked by the truths of this chapter and I felt the need to share them with my wife. And so um, being a good husband, I scheduled a romantic getaway weekend. We had two children at that time and um, like most young couples with small kids, we didn't have a lot of time or money. So to uh, find somebody to keep the kids and to get away for a weekend and a bed and breakfast up on the White Mountains of New Hampshire, it was a wonderful, romantic kind of weekend. And I ruined it <laughs> by, uh, by insisting that we uh, talk together about the truths that I was uh, learning and discovering here in the first chapter of Ephesians. So our our romantic getaway turned into the two of us. I don't think we ever really left the room. We came up for air just to eat, I believe. But we would sit on the floor of the room with our Bibles open and go back and forth with the Old and New Testament. And um, what about this verse? What about that verse? And and so forth. And uh, I remember one of the refrains of that uh, weekend over and over again was, It's not fair. And uh, in my normally sensitive way, 
I said, um, where in the Bible does it say God has to be fair? Which was not a particularly helpful approach, you might imagine. So uh, uh, we knew that we had to come to the same place in this issue. We knew that this was so significant to who God was and how we understood him and, and understood what had happened in our lives, both of us having been converted out of unbelieving families, that it was so significant that, that we must um, come together. And so by the amazing and glorious and wonderful grace of God, by the time the romantic weekend was over, uh, Carol relented and, uh, <laughs> and came to the knowledge of the truth. No, we, um, we humbled our hearts before the Word of God and the Spirit of God really uh, enabled us to read and understand, at least at a limited level. And so the, um, the truths that we're going to begin to look at uh, starting this week have been very near and dear to my heart for, as I say, almost 35 years. And over those times, as I have studied the Bible uh, repeatedly, I have become more and more and more persuaded to the depth of the, of the, the very core of my being that God is absolutely sovereign over everything, everything. And that doesn't scare me. In fact, that has given me such uh, encouragement. It has been an anchor to my soul through difficult times, um, personal difficulties, family difficulties, church difficulties, uh, you name it, even world uh, event sort of difficulties. Um, this uh, wonderful, wonderful truth of the sovereignty of God has, uh, has been there for me. And so as we begin here, looking at Ephesians, uh, digging really in deeply here, beginning in verse 4, what I want to see, the kind of the structure here of the next few weeks at least, is to explore four facets of God's sovereign election. So four fa- facets of God's sovereign election. Why? So that we will rejoice like the Apostle Paul in the glorious and gracious love of the Father. So we last week kind of overviewed this section. We saw the Father's love and how it provoked within Paul this, this just overflowing um, passion to extol God's um, glories and his grace. And that's what the, the uh, doctrine of election should do in every one of our hearts. It should move and motivate us to worship our great God. And so that's what I am hopeful to come from this. Now, I know because a number of you have spoken to me over the last few weeks that this doctrine of election is for some of you an area of confusion. And you have expressed that to me and you've said, I, boy, there's just stuff I don't really understand and I'd like to understand it. And uh, so I'm hopeful over the next few weeks to provide some clarity for you. I know for others of you that you struggle with it and uh, that you're kind of convinced that the Bible teaches it, but, but embracing it as a wonderful, glorious thing, you're not just there yet. And I know there are some here who just can't get there. It's just really uh, very difficult for you. And I, and I hope, in a gracious way, as we unpack the scriptures here, that, that you would come to see uh, it for in the glory it really is. And for those of you who are already persuaded like me, uh, this, is, um, this is cake and ice cream time. And uh, it's just going to be sweet to your mouth, um, but it will also be that uh, reminder of that anchor to your soul, okay? 
So, so here we go. First facet of God's sovereign election. And the way this will be, at least for the next week or so, the way this will be is somewhat more of a kind of a Bible study uh, sort of thing. You know, the homiletic portion of it, it would be nice to craft it into this, you know, really cutesy kind of thing, but I'm not that clever. So uh, we're just going to look at a lot of verses together and, and just really kind of unpack the, the biblical evidence of all of this, okay? So, so we begin here with the reality of God's sovereign election. So uh, in this section of, of the first chapter of Ephesians, verses 4 to, to 14, actually verses uh, 3 through 14, as I told you last time, is one big, long, complicated Greek sentence. And, and it just gushes over with Paul's praise and, and adoration for God the Father, for his work. And it, and, it, and it begins here in verse 4 with the Father's choice before time for, for people to be united with his Son, Christ. That begins this section where Paul says here, uh, God who has blessed us, verse 3, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. And he begins to spell them out here. And the first one he says is, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And that drops us into the deep end of the pool. We are now in the water that, uh, you know, you can't, your tippy toes don't touch bottom. So you have to swim. So we are in the deep water here, and we're going to have to swim together. So let me begin with just a, a little uh, Greek grammar for you. It's, it's I think, helpful. This uh, verb here in verse 4, he chose us. The verb, uh, eklekomai, is a, is a, um, is a verb in, in the classical Greek. That means, uh, depending on the voice in which it appears, so if you've got my notes, I've spelled that all out for you, and I don't think I'll necessarily go through all of that here, other than to say this, if it appears in the middle voice, which it does here, it's an aorist middle imperative, or uh, indicative, if it appears in the middle voice here, what it means is to, is to choose or to pick out for yourself. That's the idea. Okay, so when it says that, uh, that he, that is God the Father, chose us in Christ, it means he, he picked us out for himself. It's used in classical Greek to, uh, to pick out or pull out uh, one's own gray hairs. Okay, so it's spoken of in that way or used in that way. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is known as the Septuagint, the verb appears 139 times, 130 of which are in the middle voice. In the Koine Greek, which is the Greek of the New Testament, in the same way. It appears in the New Testament 22 times, always in the middle voice. So the verb, it's, it's really not contestable. The verb means, when it says that he chose us, it means he picked us out for himself. That's the idea, okay? He picked us out for himself. And he did it, as it says here, in Christ. So this launches us into this whole idea of God choosing or God picking or God selecting for himself. The doctrine of election. And some, uh, perhaps, of your translations might even uh, handle it that way here in verse 4, that he, that he chose us or, or we were elect in him. So it launches us into this doctrine of election. 
So what I want to do this morning is to, is to look at God's choosing or the doctrine of election as it appears throughout the Bible. God is a, is a choosing God. God is an electing God. God is a sovereign God, and he acts sovereignly with regard to his creation. So what I've done is, is kind of broken it down into, into five types of election spoken of in the Bible. Okay, so five types of election. And so I want to just work through those with you, and in the process, uh, hopefully demonstrate to you that this is not just some new concept that just occurs here, or maybe a couple of different verses, but it's actually uh, everywhere in the Bible, and, it, and it's a display of who God is. And so it begins this way, these uh, five kinds of elections. It begins first with uh, what we call the elect angels. Okay, So it begins with the elect angels. Now this is kind of the non-threatening realm. Okay, the elect angels. We're no angels in here. Okay, pretty much know that for sure. None of you are angels, and uh, so we can uh, speak about this without any emotion. So let's think about uh, you know angels here for a moment. So angels were created by God and originally created good and holy, and we know that for sure. And, and I'll tell you what we're, we're going to thumb around here. So so Genesis chapter one. We'll go way back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 31. So angels were created originally by God as good and holy. And how do I know that? Well, because I know that based on God's declaration in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 31 that he makes here on the sixth day of creation when he has finished creating everything that he has made. In verse 31, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So the creation of the angels is spoken of here as something that is very good. Now, why did God create angels? Well, uh, we probably don't know uh, exhaustively why, but we we certainly can uh, uh, have an understanding of that. And Colossians chapter 1 will help provide some, some help for, uh, to that question. So to Colossians chapter 1, why did, why were angels created? So there in uh, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16, We are told, for by him, that is Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. So this would be the angelic realm. It's concluded here. All things have been created through him and for him. So Christ created the angelic realm for his benefit, for his benefit, for his glory. And in fact, Psalm 148 provides a little definition for that, what all that might mean. So if you go to Psalm 148, get a little help here. Where the entire creation is exhorted to praise the Lord. Psalm 148, we'll just begin in verse 1. Praise to the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him all His angels. 
Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all stars of light. Praise him, highest heavens and the waters that are above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded, and they were created. They were created to praise God, to bring glory to his name. In fact, one writer in a book with regard to angels uh, says, and I quote, Surrounded by every good and holy thing, they enjoyed God's presence and heaven's environment. So they were in the very presence of God enjoying all what it means to be there in that amazing and wonderful place. But sometime following the sixth day of creation, and the reason I would say it would be after the sixth day of creation, because God pronounces things very good there at the end of the sixth day. So sometime following the sixth day of creation, and likely not long after that, the cherub, Satan, and he is a cherub, and uh, that means he... He is the member of what was the highest order of angels that are known as the cherubim in plural, Hebrew plural. So the cherub, Satan, uh, lifted up with pride, rebelled against his creator. The prophet Isaiah, I'm not going to turn you there for the sake of time, but the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 14, verses 12 and 4 through 14, and the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 28 12 to 29 detail, I believe, some of what was involved in that great rebellion. As a result of Satan's rebellion against God, he drew with him many of these angels originally created good and holy, and they joined with him against God, and they were judged by God. Some were permanently confined to, to uh, a place known as the abyss, where they await the judgment of God, and others are, were still freed by God to, to uh, wander, as it were, within the creation and um, commit all kinds of acts of evil. And I don't have time to, understand, to try to work about why God would allow that. Okay, we just have to sit it aside for a moment, but just say that that's reality. And we see that in Second Peter chapter 2. Okay, Second Peter 2, and verse 4, where Peter is speaking about the, the fate of the false teacher, and he uses uh, what has happened to these fallen angels as an illustration of the fact that God will ultimately judge the false teachers too. But he says, for if, verse 4, if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and, and on he goes. So the point of it is that, is that when they sinned, they were committed to these pits of judgment. They were confined for judgment. You see the same thing over in Jude, in uh, Jude chapter 1 and verse 6. Where there Jude says, And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now, there were not all of the angelic realm participated in Satan's rebellion. In fact, uh, I would 
suggest to you that although it was a large conspiracy, the majority of the angels remained true and faithful to God. And they were then confirmed in their holiness. Meaning that at that point, God established a boundary of which the angels are unable to cross. Those that were condemned and confined remain wicked and and unrepentant and in open rebellion against God and will so for all of eternity. And those who did not participate in the rebellion were confirmed in their holiness and remain holy and untouched by sin or temptation. They serve him as ministers and messengers and they are referred to by scripture in 1 Timothy chapter 5, and so I'll turn you there, 1 Timothy 5 and verse 21 as elect angels, elect angels. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 21, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. So this, this part of the angelic realm are the elect angels of God, the chosen angels of God. These angels remain uh, intensely curious about God's grace operating in the lives of humanity, both in salvation and worship and service. And the reason they are intensely interested is because there is no grace available in the angelic realm. Those that fell were confirmed in their wickedness. Those that remained true were confirmed in their holiness. And there is no movement from one to the other. These are the elect angels of God. Secondly, we see God choosing to himself or choosing for himself in the election of Israel. An election of Israel. And it's interesting how this begins. And for that, we need to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 and the choice of Abraham. The choice of Abraham. Genesis 12, verses 1 and following. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. God chose Abraham. But here's an interesting question for you, perhaps you haven't thought of before, is why did God choose Abraham and not Melchizedek? Why Abraham, not Melchizedek? So if you go to chapter 14, just to be reminded, because maybe Melchizedek is not, you know, right on the tip of your tongue. But this is uh, after Abraham returns from the, uh, the slaughter of the kings and earlier in chapter 14 here. And verse 18, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God most high. 
He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, that is Abraham, gave him a tenth of all. We have this enigmatic fellow by the name of Melchizedek. He is a Gentile king, priest, follower of God. And as the writer of the Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 7, without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. And so here, clearly, Melchizedek is the greater one. And yet God does not choose Melchizedek, the greater one. He chooses Abraham, the lesser one, and gives a covenant to him that he will bless him and through him bless all the peoples of the earth. So, Abraham, not Melchizedek. Beyond that, Isaac, not Ishmael. So you go to chapter 17 of Genesis. And verse 17, where Abraham is, he has a a child through Sarah's handmaid, right, Ishmael. And God is is, uh, giving a promise here, even though Abraham's 100 years old, his wife's 90 years old, that that she, Sarah, will bear a son. And, And basically what he says is, what about my son Ishmael? Why not him? Then Abraham fell on his face, verse 17, and laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Take him. Choose him. But God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. Go over to chapter 21, verse 12. Where Hagar and her son Ishmael are cast out. And Abraham is distressed by all of this. He certainly loved his son Ishmael. Verse 12 of chapter 21. And God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah uh, tells you, listen to her. For through Isaac your descendants shall be named. Why? Why Isaac, not Ishmael? Because God has sovereignly chosen it that way. We continue on. Why Jacob, not Esau? So that turns us to Genesis chapter 25 and verse 23. Where Rebecca has twins in her womb. And apparently they are struggling together within there. And so she goes to the Lord, and the Lord says to her, verse 23, Genesis 25, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older will, or shall serve the younger. The older shall serve the younger. 
Meaning God will choose or has chosen Jacob and not Esau. Now you go all the way to the end of the Old Testament and you get to Malachi and there's an interesting, the prophet Malachi reflects on this reality. Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, 3, 1, 2, and 3, Malachi 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Now, we have fast-forwarded here for, I I didn't do the math, um, what, 1,500 years or something like that. And uh, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord to Israel. But you say, how have you loved us? Answer, was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. And I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. I loved Jacob. I've chosen Jacob. The reality of that is spelled out for us back in Deuteronomy. So, back to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Because it is through Jacob's 12 sons, of course, that come the 12 tribes, Jacob's name being changed by God to Israel, one who struggles with God, and his 12 sons, uh, born to uh, four different women, become the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. So back to Deuteronomy and Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 37, where it's written for us, because he, that is God, loved your fathers, therefore he chose their descendants after them. And he personally brought you from Egypt by his great power, by driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you. You go over to chapter 7 and verses 7 and 8. Where we read, the Lord did not set his love on you. He's speaking to the nation now. Either the descendants of Abraham through Jacob, or excuse me, through, um, uh, through Isaac and then Jacob. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all the peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers... The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery and from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. There are other places we could go to see the same thing. So why did God choose Israel to himself? Was it because they were a larger, more numerous, more prosperous nation? No, because uh, God knew that they would love and follow him and uh, and do his will? Obviously not. He calls them a stiff-necked and rebellious nation. Why did God choose Israel? For his own good pleasure, to the praise of the glory of his grace. So we see, secondly, the election of Israel. Third, we see the election of individuals for particular roles. Okay? The differentiation and election or choice of individuals for particular roles. So it begins with the Levitical priests. Think about this. The Levitical priests. Why them? 
Why was this one tribe chosen out from all the other tribes and set aside to be a priesthood perpetually before God? As one writer, Harold Honer, in his excellent commentary on Ephesians, uh, notes, he says, God's choice of Levi for the priesthood does not imply anything negative about the other tribes. Again, it's not because Levi is, is somehow in a better position than the other 11 tribes. It is for God's good pleasure that he has chosen Levi to himself for the Levitical priesthood. Secondly, he chose Cyrus, king of Persia. So go to Isaiah chapter 45, where the most amazing statement is made. And the reason it's amazing is because it's made 125 or 50 years before Cyrus is even born. Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 1. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, or his Messiah, his chosen one, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. What's interesting about this is before this man is even conceived... More than a century, God calls him out by name and says that he has chosen him to be the deliverer of his ancient people, Israel. And it will indeed be the decree of Cyrus the Persian that will allow Israel to go back into their homeland following the 70 years of the Babylonian captivity. Okay? So God chose him, as it were, before time. This corresponds well with Daniel chapter 2 and verse 21 Right where it says God establishes kings and God basically overthrows them again. That is, God sets up the rulers. And the point of all of that is an argument from the greater to the lesser. Listen, if God is the one who sets up the most powerful men in the world, then by extension, then God establishes and overthrows all other lesser men. That's me. That's you. Okay? So he chose Cyrus. He chose David. So 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel 16. And beginning in verse 7. The Lord said Samuel on a mission to select the next king of Israel. And the Lord said to Samuel, verse 7 of 1 Samuel 16, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, for I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For God, or excuse me, for man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Aminadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Next, Jesse made uh, Shammah pass before him, or pass by. And he said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Just Jesse made seven of his sons passed before Samuel, but Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, are these all the kids? And he said, well, there remains yet the youngest, and behold, he is tending the sheep. The idea being he's of no account. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he is here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy. That means his face was red, which means he had no beard. 
Okay? He was just a red-faced little boy. Hardly imposing. But he, was be- he had beautiful eyes, and he was handsome in appearance. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Are you kidding me? This is, the do- this is the deliverer king of the nation of Israel, a little boy who hasn't yet had a chance. You know, the cats can lick off the whiskers, right? This is the guy. So Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Okay? So David was God's choice. David was God's choice, and if I had time, I would take you back earlier, where when God rejects Saul and says, I have chosen another, chronologically, he makes that statement before David's even born. Before he's even born. So he chose the Levitical priest, he chose Cyrus, the king of the Persians, he chose David to be king of Israel, and finally, he chose the apostles. Jesus chose the apostles. So, go to Luke chapter 6. In verse 13. Luke 6. Verse 13 follows Jesus praying all night. When day came, he, Jesus, called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them whom he also named as apostles. Why them? He had lots of disciples, lots of followers. His his ministry is popular still at this point. He chose them. He chose them. John chapter 6 and verse 70 makes it even more explicit. Where Jesus says to his disciples there, and this is, this is after the beginning of the collapse of his popularity in Galilee, the great Galilean campaign. Verse 70, Jesus says to them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. Jesus chose the twelve apostles, including Judas. Including Judas. Chapter 15 and verse 16 of John's Gospel. Where Jesus writes there, or speaks, actually. John records it for us. Jesus spoke. So on the night of his betrayal, he said, You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name he may give to you. You didn't choose me. I chose you. I chose you. If you go to Acts chapter 9 and verse 15, you will see that the choice of God in the selection of the Apostle Paul. This is where Paul, having been brought to his knees, literally, on the road to Damascus, receiving a vision of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ here and being wondrously converted. Ananias is told to go and to baptize him and so forth, and Ananias basically says to the Lord, are you crazy? This guy is out to kill us. 
And then we hear this, uh, Ananias hears this in verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons, the sons of Israel. So the choice of Paul is God's choice. And then we have one more in Acts 15 and verse 7, where we have the choice of Peter. This is at the Jerusalem Council. Peter is a, is a, is a leader and, and spokesman here. And so, you know, how did that come about? Did they get together and have a vote and say, okay, which of the 12 are we going to put forward and, and make, you know, our spokesman? He's going to be the leader of the band. No. Verse 7, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. Okay? God chose Peter to preach the sermon of Pentecost and from there the gospel to spill out to the nations. Good old Peter, the one who was always putting his foot in his mouth. Good old Peter, the one who wilted in the face of the accusation of a slave girl in the court of Caiaphas the high priest, right? God chose Peter. So there are the election of individuals for particular roles. Fourth, God's election of Messiah. God's choice of Messiah. Acts chapter 42. Acts 42 and verse 1. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my spirit delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Right? My chosen one. Luke, in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 9 and verse 35, the same terminology is used. There at the transfiguration, the voice of God the Father speaks. There on the mountain. Luke chapter 9 and verse 35. Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. In what sense is the Messiah, the, the very Son of God himself, in what sense is he the chosen one of God? And the answer to that is that he was chosen to fulfill a particular and indispensable role in securing salvation for his people. He was chosen to fulfill the role of the Redeemer, chosen by God. Okay? And that leads us to the fifth the fifth category of God's election in the Scripture, and this is God's election of individuals to salvation. The prophet Jonah says in Jonah 2.9, salvation is from the Lord. Salvation is from the Lord. So, the prior four categories, most people can kind of get there, and it doesn't really cause a lot of problems. Right? You know, the choice of the elect angels, the choice of the nation of Israel and the individuals that lead up to it, and, and the choice of particular kings and, 
and various leaders and even the choice of the Messiah himself to fulfill his role. All of that is fine. And now we get to this place. And this is the place where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? This is the place for the last 45 minutes you've all been waiting for me to get to. But being a coward, I didn't want to start here. I needed to warm you up a little. Because now we've arrived at the issue of God's election, God's choice to himself of certain individuals to partake of the salvation Messiah has earned. Now down through the history of the church, this has caused huge problems. It has been the source of rank heresies such as Pelagianism, which we are thankful to Augustine for his um, refuting of it, his rebuttal of it. It has caused intense conflicts between those who call themselves Calvinists and those who call themselves Arminians. In a, just a little uh, fun historical note, uh, that associate pastor who took such a shine to me and really spent a lot of time with me was an Arminian pastor, and he was doing everything in his power to convince me from Ephesians of the Armenian position, and uh, it didn't work out. So we are still friends to this day, okay? But it has produced some tense conflicts. In fact, it has even separated very close friends such as John Wesley and George Whitfield. They were separated over this particular issue. So it's big, and it's difficult. So... As we dig in, really the beginning was just sort of an introduction, okay? We're digging in now. As we dig in, my prayer is that God would so work in our spiritual palate that as we chew on this doctrine, we would find it to be delightful. And that we would taste and see that the Lord is good. So, the New Testament speaks freely and frequently about God's sovereign election with regard to individuals, sovereignly choosing them unto redemption. So, let's begin in John's Gospel, John chapter 6. John chapter 6 and verse 37. Maybe I'll move back to 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. And he who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father. And everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Down to verse 65. And he was saying, as Jesus was speaking here, because the Jews have, have uh, refused him. And he says, For this reason, 
What reason? Well, up to verse 63, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. That is, you cannot receive the word of the Spirit, which is life itself, unless it has been granted to you of the Father. That's John's argument here. And by the way, people didn't like it. They don't like it now, and they didn't like it then. Verse 66, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Great way to split a church. Start preaching on election. But we're compelled, aren't we? By by Paul's letter to the Ephesians. You can go to Acts chapter 13. We have another very strong statement here. So this is Paul's first missionary journey. He's been preaching uh, to the Jews there in the synagogue. And they have uh, turned... And repudiated it and are blaspheming. And Paul says to them in verse 46, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, that is to the Jews, since you repudiated and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And then check this out. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. How many believed? As many as had been appointed. As many as had been chosen. As many as had been chosen. We can turn to the right to Romans chapter 9. Where Paul, reflecting back on God's elective work, with Jacob over Esau, Romans chapter 9 and verse 11, Paul is, is uh, laboring away here to make sure that, that we understand. Verse 11, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad. So you get the picture. This is, this is before time for them, for sure. And obviously if they haven't been born, they haven't done anything. So that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob, I loved, but Esau I hated. Chapter 11, verse 7. What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it. And the rest were hardened. First Thessalonians chapter one and verse four. By the way, this doctrine for the Apostle Paul was always a source of joy, just great joy in this. Verse 2, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 2. I'm sorry, 1 Thessalonians. My mistake. 1 Thessalonians. I'm not sure what I just said. 1 Thessalonians, that was what I mean to say. Chapter 1, okay? 1 Thess, chapter 1, beginning of verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly and bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father, knowing 
brethren beloved by God, his choice of you. Okay? Brothers, loved by God, his choice of you. Okay? God, our Paul is rejoicing in God's election of these believers here in Thessalonica. In 2 Thess, chapter 2 and verse 13. Again, notice the connection to thanksgiving this doctrine uh, brings. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. God has chosen you from the beginning to receive salvation. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. Where Peter says to the believers there, you are a chosen race. You are a chosen race. God has chosen you. Couple more. Revelation 13. Revelation 13, verses 7 and 8. The Antichrist here. And it said it was also given to him, Antichrist, to make war with the saints. Okay, and the saints here, uh, you should be thinking Israel, believing Israel. Uh, and those Gentiles who have believed following the rapture, okay, call them tribulation saints, it was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to Antichrist. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of, the life, in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. Okay? So when were the names of these who were faithful to Christ in the midst of the persecution of the tribulation and and stood firm against the Antichrist, their names were written from the foundation of the world. We could say it this way, they were elect before time. Chapter 17, and this will be the last one, and verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. Names written before time. So, what can we glean from all of this? We pull it all together. What we can glean is simply this. In all the passages about choosing or election, it is always the initiative lies with God. Okay? The initiative in the choosing always lies with God. God chose you if you are in Christ here this morning. If you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, it is the result of God having first chosen you. The initiative lies with Him. With Him. Therefore, we can say, and here's a definition, and maybe we'll amend it as we go, but I have a definition for you of election. 
Election refers to God's decision to exercise his sovereign choice over the affairs of his world, including events, nations, and individuals. This choice extends to the spirit realm and encompasses a fallen individual's response to the good news of salvation available only in Christ. Okay? So God's election is, covers everything. Covers everything. So, beloved, how do we respond, right? What shall we say to all of this? Well, I can think of nothing better than what Paul says in Romans chapter 11, and I will turn you there, verses 33 to the end of the chapter. In fact, what I'm going to have you do is rise, and this will be our benediction. You can follow along if you like, or you can close your eyes and allow me to read it to you. Your choice. Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen and amen.